Hi, I'm Jesse, and uh, it's great to be speaking to you this morning about the subject of worship. Over the summer, we've been looking at different aspects of uh, church life. My task today is to talk about the activity of worship, which is something I've spent a good deal of my life thinking about. Uh, so it's not actually that simple to come up with uh, a single talk that really captures all that I feel I have to say about worship. So uh, this is the first of a 24 part season on worship. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, I'm just going to try and get it all into a nutshell uh, today. Um, but I do have to only speak about one aspect of worship and where uh, I think it's all supposed to start, where I think it's all supposed to spring from, is the activity of simply spending time with Jesus and devoting our attention to him. Uh, so for this daunting task, I've turned uh, to one of my absolute favourite characters of significance in the Bible. There are all sorts of people you could turn to. Um, to study worship, maybe some of the great covenant makers like David or Abraham, or some of the great priests like Aaron or Zadok or Melchizedek, or perhaps even um, uh, some of the prophets who had great visions of God in his heavenly temple. But I'm turning instead to um, a woman called Mary in uh, the Gospels, uh, not the mother of Jesus, who herself has an absolutely stunning hymn of praise, um, uh, but Mary, the sister of uh, Martha and of Lazarus, um, Lazarus who was raised uh, from the dead. This family, um, these these siblings, I think are the closest the closest example of what we might call. Jesus's mates, you know, there were people who uh, Jesus just enjoyed spending time with, hanging out with, going to see them. And I've selected two passages where Mary appears, one from Luke chapter 10 and the other from John chapter 12. So uh, if you want to turn to uh, Luke chapter 10, I'm just going to read a short passage uh, starting from verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. So Mary is uh, all kinds of controversial. The male disciples are really not big fans of her, because uh, in this scene, she's adopted a position uh, of the disciple of a rabbi, which is a bit of a radical position for her to adopt in that culture. We don't actually know where her brother Lazarus is in this story. I suspect he's gone to bed early, feeling a bit poorly, 
But um, if anybody in that household had been expected to sit at the feet of the rabbi, it would have been Lazarus. But no, there sits Mary hanging on every word that Jesus has to say. And Jesus is obviously 100% cool with that situation. And turn quickly to uh, another story that's told in all four Gospels, but here uh, we're looking at John. Uh, it's chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man whom he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honour. Martha served, there she is again, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, for he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Excuse me. <clears throat> Jesus replied, leave her alone. He did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So in this story, <clears throat> Mary takes this insanely expensive jar of perfume and pours it all over the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. And the disciples are enraged because it could have been sold to the poor. Now, it's not just Judas, although John chooses to, uh, to isolate him, but in the other gospel accounts of the same event, all of the disciples are enraged. But Jesus's response is this, leave her alone. The poor, you're always gonna have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And by the way, I've preached before on this, but um, Jesus is not saying ignore the poor. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy um, where in response to the fact that you will always have the poor among you, you are therefore always to be generous to the poor. But Jesus is making another point here. You will not always have me. What she's chosen is the better part what is available to her right there and then. And you can actually hear echoes of the same teaching here that is directed to Martha in the first story. You can see it directed to the disciples in the second story. Guys, you are worried and distracted by many things, but what Mary has chosen is the right thing at the right time, and that will not be taken away to her. You must not denigrate her for that choice. So on both occasions, Mary's devotion to Jesus provokes much indignation from others, but Jesus instead affirms her choices. But we need to look at what that means for how Jesus views those alternatives. If in the first episode, it's Mary's attention 
versus Martha's hospitality. Then in the second story, it's Mary's lavish adoration of Jesus versus the disciples caring for the poor and the vulnerable. We have to ask ourselves, so is Jesus indifferent to good hospitality? And is he indifferent to the needs of the poor and the vulnerable? Well, it would be absolutely impossible to answer yes to either of those questions if you've even had a cursory glance at the Gospels. So we need to look a little deeper at what Jesus is actually saying here. I think that he's teaching that the right balance of all things at multiple times and in various ways involves a focus first upon him, his presence, who he is. I think there's some clues um, to how this works in some of the surrounding parts in that story in Luke. So if you've got your Bible open uh, to Luke chapter 10, right at the end of Luke chapter 10 is that uh, encounter with Mary and Martha. But if you scan back uh, to chapter 10, verse 25, you've got this conversation between Jesus and a lawyer. And this same event is recorded in Matthew's gospel. And the conversation is about the two greatest commandments of law that God has given his people. And Matthew records Jesus as describing the two great laws like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So we have that encounter between Jesus and this, this lawyer. Following that, in response to the second commandment, this love of others, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's an illustration of what the second commandment looks like, looks like in real life. I love our neighbours. Following that, we get the Mary Martha episode, which seems to be these two commandments somewhat coming into a tussle with one another. Love of God love of one another, service of God, service of one another, worship and hospitality. Following that, you get a Jesus, uh, you get Jesus teaching about prayer. He goes away to pray by himself. Sometimes I wonder, you know, could Jesus have healed more people? Of course he could have done. He could have done more, but he had his life in balance and he chose these moments to go away into the wilderness and pray. He gave out from what he got in. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is what he then teaches about prayer. He says this, this is how you should pray. Our Father, May your name be kept holy, or hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The first thing he says 
is God, you are holy. You are worthy of my whole life's attention. It's your kingdom I seek. I seek it first before I seek anything else. What you want, what you desire, God, that is what I want. Your will, not my will. And only then does he say, give us each day our daily bread. Give us what we need. Wherever my daily meal comes from, it comes from you. You are the one who sustains me. I look first to you to give you honor and worship and glory. And then I look to my table to partake of what you have provided. This is where Martha had got it wrong. She looked first to the table. And then we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lord, I need you to forgive me. And from that forgiveness, I then reach out and I forgive and extend your mercy to other people. It's from the overflow of what I receive from God that I give out. So here we have the priority of God's law as he's described it to the lawyer. Love God and love one another. And by priority, what I mean is that the first thing comes first. You do one and then you do the other. Do the first thing first. Don't be distracted by all the other things because that will cause you to forget to do the first thing. Honor God, worship God, seek his kingdom first then look to the table to see what he has set before you, both to feed upon and to do for others. Receive the forgiveness of God, then forgive others. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says, uh, he talks about uh, comforting them with the, with the comfort he has received from God. First God, then others. Both essential, but the first thing first. So it's strange sometimes that Martha gets such a bad rap, that especially after the incredible parable of the Good Samaritan in which Jesus explains that practical help for others is the definitive characteristic of obedience to the second commandment. And then he should say that of these two people, the one who is doing nothing has chosen the better option, while the de person demonstrating practical help needs correction. But the work that Martha is doing is not the issue here. Otherwise, the parable of the Good Samaritan would make no sense. The issue isn't Martha's, Martha's work, it's her distractedness, her worry as she works. Jesus clearly cares deeply about good hospitality. So many of his parables are based upon hospitality, and so many of his uh, teachings and encounters are in the context of good food and wine. And he cares more than any of us than, uh, uh, about those who suffer in poverty, 
But all of these, he says, must come after the proper attentiveness and devotion due to God himself. One follows from the other. And in fact, if the second doesn't flow from the first, then you're not doing the first thing correctly. Worship naturally flows into service, obedience, love for the other. But it starts with attentiveness to the presence of Jesus. So I've just got two observations uh, very quickly, which I'm going to close with, about what Mary's actions in both these stories teaches us. I think that uh, it shows us worship of two different types, two different movements. Worship that receives and worship that gives. First thing, worship that receives. Now, this is a bit of a strange place to start because God is God, right? And worship that we pour out, even if we receive nothing in return, that would be entirely appropriate to who God is and entirely appropriate to who we are in relation to him. So to talk about worship that receives might seem strange. But for the same reason, because God is God, he always outgives the giver. That's just who God is. And not only that, but in order to have our souls bent towards his will in a life of worship and service, we need him to pour himself into us. And that happens neither by accident nor by force. God is gentle and kind, and he comes when we invite him, when we deliberately make time to sit at his feet. Like Mary, we need to take time to be attentive to what God is doing and to what God is saying and not be distracted by what we need to say and what we need to do. Our outward movement needs to be the fruit of that inward movement. We love because God first loves us. That's what John says in his letter. And then secondly, worship that gives. And normally when I talk about worship, I'm talking about our whole lives, our every act for God, whether directly or indirectly. But now I'm talking about our direct activity towards him, our giving directly to him. Love for God for his own sake before we do a single other thing. I'm talking about time that we spend in private closed rooms telling jesus that we love him and that we belong to him i'm also talking about time gathered with one another express expressing our devotion as a body i'm talking about 100 single-minded extravagant adoration of god this features all sorts of different acts within it whether you know just to name a few praise adoration, thanksgiving, petition, confession, submission, devotion, 
all of these things are aspects of our direct attentiveness and offering ourselves to God. The worship that receives, that contemplates his presence and his words, what he has to say, where we are quiet and we dote upon every word from the lips of our Savior, and worship that gives, where we lavish our love upon the Savior. These are worship encounters that really make up our highest calling as human beings. And all other things are to be the fruit, the natural outcrop of that communion with God through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. I'm the sort of person who leans towards practical application, but my practical application for us today is that our entire lives must be organized and oriented around worship, both in private and in community, in outward expressions of our devotion to God, as well as inward contemplation of God's love for us. I think the challenge of our time is to re orient our lives around public worship. This is, uh, this, this is the challenge. We've had such a long time of not being able to gather together. So safely, slowly, but certainly, let us get back into the habit of meeting together with one another, eventually, hopefully, laying hands upon one another, expressing the love of God to one another for one another. But it all comes first from our deliberate, intentional attentiveness and love for the Father through the Son by the Spirit.